What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. You know, one thing I've discovered in all the years of leadership that I've been in, it doesn't matter how long you've led. It really doesn't matter how many people you've led. You will always vacillate in leadership between fear and confidence. I don't know how many leaders I talk to that wake up some mornings and just feel incredibly unqualified for their job. And then there's other days they feel like, man, I'm in my slot. Today's episode is for you. Welcome to Lynch with a Leader. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that God has put us. I am so glad you are with us today for episode 149 of this podcast. And I tell you what, I have been waiting to get this one out because my conversation with Dr. Karen Gordon was absolute gold. In fact, I got through, I had three pages of notes. I got through one page of my notes. We're already talking about having her on again in 2023 to expand this a little bit more because her well was so deep and we had so much to talk about and it is going to be a fun one today. And I just want to hit pause real quick. Thank you to each of you who listen every week that we release an episode for so many of you that have gone and left a rating and review. This one last came in from Nick's K leading from the heart, five-star uh, review. Keep up the great work, coach. Your talks allow me to refill the tank over and over and over again. Thank you for listening in. And if you've never subscribed, go subscribe. That is the easiest way to stay on top of never missing an episode. And if you do subscribe, share it with a friend because there is just so much good stuff in each episode from these amazing leaders that come our way. Dr. Karen Gordon, I had not heard of until I listened to her episode on Carrie Newhoff's podcast, and it blew me away. I quickly reached out to her, and she was so kind to get right back with me. We got her episode set up. Karen Gordon is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, TED Talk speaker. She's spoken live to more than a half a million people in 17 countries, including Fortune 500 executives, family businesses, entrepreneurs. She's been collaborating with professors at the Wharton School to develop an EQ curriculum for family businesses and the Consul General of Canada in New York. She has her doctorate in marriage and family, spent over 25 years in professional counseling before moving into the executive coach world. You may have seen her on Good Morning America. Her TED Talk on the three chairs that we're going to talk about today on her newest book went 
crazy and went viral and has been seen by so many people. But what you're going to love about Dr. Karen is her heart for people and her heart for Jesus. This is an all-timer. And this is one of those I have talked about so much. I felt like I've told everybody who listens everything we talk about. So I don't know where you're listening from today, but you're going to want to listen twice because there is so much good coming. So I want you to pull up a chair. I want you to grab something to write on. And I want you to listen in to my conversation with Dr. Karen Gordon. Well, Dr. Karen, thank you so much for joining me on this episode with Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. I am I am so excited for this podcast, and I, I already get a sense, Mike, that there are so many different areas that we can actually go deep together on. There really are. It was funny, when I finished reading your book, Three Chairs, which we're going to talk about today, I had this whole list of questions. And then I go listen to you talk to Carrie Newhoff, and I get another couple pages of questions. <laughs> so I got way too many pages, Dr. Karen, way too many pages. And that was never my problem in school. So that's a good, <laughs> I never had enough notes in school. I never had enough notes. Well, you know, it's a good problem to have. And like we were talking about just before we started, you know, when I did my interview with Carrie, I... We, we just were scratching the surface. You know, my background is just very wide and very deep. And so, you know, there's so many different areas we can kind of explore as it relates to leadership, both at work and at home in the classroom. I love that. You know, so many times you sit down with somebody and you hear the things their parents did wrong, Ooh. but you're a picture of some things your parents did right that mm -hmm. really helped shape who you are today. Unpack a little bit about what your parents did right that created a platform for you, for who you are today. You know, at the time I didn't, you know, like most kids, you just kind of think every parent's kind of like your parent, right? So, but I remember my first moment where I thought, mm, my parents do things a little different. I was in great, grade four. I'm Canadian, everybody. So you're going to hear my Canadian accent. So, <laughs> so to all my American friends and clients are like, you mean the fourth grade. So in Canada, we say grade four, but, um, so, uh, I was in grade four and I was, remember I was at the back of my classroom and I was kind of getting my jacket on and I, and it was report card day. And there's a whole bunch of the kids kind of like talking in the back. And I heard these kids going, Oh my goodness, my mom's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me. I'm like, what do you mean your dad? Like, and they were obviously just kind of, you know, just, you know, being a little bit dramatic, yeah. but I said, what, why they're like, well, it's report card. And I didn't get straight A's. And I remember thinking that was so strange because I never had that conversation with my mom and dad. And, uh, and I went home and I said, mom and dad, it's a report card. And, and they were like, okay. And, um, and then I said, well, don't you want to see it? And they're like, sure, if you want to show it to us, but they were never, they were never driven by marks. Mm. They were never driven by marks. They weren't driven by A's. They weren't driven by, you know, what they were driven by was character. They've always been when I really, it was the first time I would have been about 10 years old that I realized they paired differently. And mm. really from the get-go, they parented based on character. They were character-driven in their approach. It was all about, you know, my effort, my motivation, my mindset, my attitude, my initiative. Was I asking for help? You know, and, and because of that, and certainly I, I can talk later about kind of my whole relationship with school and my challenges with school, it really kind of started setting a bit of a foundation on how to approach life differently and how to parent differently. Your story really changed in eighth grade. And so four years later, you yes. are faced with something you didn't see coming. 
And you got a diagnosis that really played into this and that your parents responded really well to. Uh, Tell that story a little bit to everybody listening in. Sure. And for anybody who's seen my TED talk, I did a TED talk on um, about this story. I kind of go into a lot more detail about it. Uh, But I was in the eighth grade, I was struggling with school and my parents could see it. Okay. So they could, they could see that I was studying. It wasn't like I was just like not showing up. I was studying, but my marks were not, they didn't match. Mm. So you have effort and you've got marks. Those are two different things and they didn't match. And my effort was really high, but my marks were actually really low. And so they thought, okay, you know, let's go get her tested. And so I got tested by a clinical psychologist. And at 13 years old, I was told by this gentleman in a very small room, as he looked at me and he said, Karen, we know what the problem is. You've got a learning disability. And it's, he didn't stop there. What he said after that, he said, you're going to be lucky to finish high school. Like who tells that to a 13 year old? I mean, talk about an totally unprofessional, uh, response. My parents were extremely upset with how he approached it. Um, and so it wasn't just the diagnosis. It was how it was communicated Mm -hmm. to me. It was so damaging. And so we left, my parents were fuming. And literally after that day, my, my dad said to me, moving forward, we will not ask to see a report card, period. We're not going to do it. We're not forgot. We're not even going to look at we All we're going to care about is the, fir- the only one question is, did you try your absolute best? That is going to be the standard from us moving forward as a family. And why that was so powerful is because I'm the youngest of three children. My brother and sister are both highly gifted, very gifted. Um, education is a high virtue in my family. My dad went to Princeton for his doctorate. Like it's a very, my, my grandma was a, one of the first female doctors in Germany in the 1940s. So, you know, education is a high va- value. And so we, I could have come from and where, you know, that all the pressure was to kind of get education, but they had such a healthy mindset around it. And so why, why my dad's response was so powerful is because I could control my effort. I could not control the outcome. And for every parent listening, I just really absorb this for a second, because if we hold our kids accountable to things that they cannot control, you know, what's going to, what that's going to produce is anxiety, anxiety and control are best friends. So, uh, if you, put, have expectations on your kids for something they cannot control. They're going to have anxiety. So by the fact that my parents said, you can control your effort, you cannot control the outcome. So we're going to hold you accountable to what you can control, which is, which is your input. And, and all of a sudden I had hope because I realized I could control how hard I tried, where I sat in the class, if I was asking for help, if I was getting tutoring, um, you know, whether I'm going to get myself a tutor, there was a thousand things that I could control that was going to impact my outcome. And as long as I put my focus on that, I felt empowered and encouraged and I had no anxiety. And so it's a really, really important piece. You know, when we're talking about anxiety, the epidemic, we're talking about mental health epidemic, we're talking about lonely, like all, there's so many mental health issues happening right now uh, with kids. We're talking about resilience. So every parent listening is that you have to redefine failure. And that was the other thing. My parents said, this, this diagnosis doesn't define you. It's data, like lean into it, learn from it. You know, what is this, what is this telling you and teaching you about how your brain works and what you have to do, Karen, differently to help you maximize your learning. And so it kind of, they kind of took it and they flipped it right in its head. And all of a sudden that, uh, you know, and thank goodness for my parents, because had they parented differently, 
my outcome in my life would have been completely different because if they had pushed me, uh, in terms of getting grades and getting A's, I know what I would have done. I'm a very strong spirit. So for anybody listening who has spirited (laughs) children, I am a spirited child. So I know what you need to do differently to kind of parent those kids differently. So because I'm spirited, they knew how to inspire me to kind of take action of my life. Um, because if you try to tell a spirited kid to focus on something, they will completely rebel. So it not only is just healthy psychology um, in terms of inspiring motivation of your kids, it also is a really important way in terms of parenting spirited kids. That is so good. And I think our tendency, and you're living it now, you've got right. twins, you've got yeah. boys. It, our our part as a parent we feel obligated to protect them to protect their hearts not just from safety issues but even in life we don't want them to experience failure we don't want them to experience adversity why is it so critical that you are not only able to fail and you learn to fail but you as a parent don't count that as what your kids are. Talk to us a little bit about failure and why it is so big in parenting and how kids turn out. So the the challenge with our culture is that we think, so for a lot of people, we personalize failure. Okay. So I have fails, therefore, therefore I am a failure. And what we have to do is separate it. Okay. And this is, again, when I, when I got that diagnosis, you know, that was the first kind of moment where my parents were like separating. This is a diagnosis. This is data about you. This doesn't define you. So right away, they were starting to kind of like differentiate between Mm -hmm. diagnosis and Karen. Okay. So, so that was really significant. That was really huge. Um, and, and so I think that part of the reason why a lot of people struggle with failure is that it's all meshed into one. I have failed, therefore I'm a failure. Um, And we have to kind of separate who we are from what we do, who we are and from what we achieve, who we are and the goals we get and the goals we don't get. It's just, it's it's external. So I think learning how to differentiate that is actually really important. Um, The other thing about it is that, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I've been an entrepreneur for 25 years. Any entrepreneur will actually tell you, you're going to have like a gazillion amount of failure. So if we do not learn how to deal with failure and rejection and setbacks, we're not going to make it. Like failure is part of the process. And so I'm a big John Maxwell fan. I love how he kind of frames it actually as well. Our philosophy would be very, very similar in the sense that you have to fail forward. So when you fail, and this is really important, whether or not in families and schools and in the workplace is think of the information, it's information, it's data. We got to lean into it, study it. Why did I fail? And what do I have to do differently to get a different outcome? So we, we, it's literally a mind game in terms of learning how to approach failure in a very different way and failure, whether it's report cards, failure, whether it's, you know, bad feedback from, you know, a performance review, fail, maybe bad feedback from a spouse. We have to kind of redefine failure. And then all of a sudden what happens is we're going to be more likely to take risks. Cause I don't care if I feel like I, I want it. I want to get it, but if I don't get it, I'm not, I'm not going to collapse. My no. self-worth isn't based on that that goal it is it is external and so really learning how to separate that is super important for mental health um, but also for goal setting actually as well and confidence so you teach this you coach ceos you you go on and have a pretty incredible academic career you go on and get your graduate with honors from high school you end up getting your doctorate you work now with ceos all over the world 
mm-hmm. as a parent, as mm-hmm. a mom, when your children come home, how hard has this been to live out from the parenting piece of it when you're not at Sunday? The easiest day right. for me spiritually is Sundays because I get to tell people what to do. The hardest part is Monday when I actually have to do it. How yeah, has sure. it been as a mom having to live this out with your own boys? Yeah, it's a great question. And it has been surprisingly easier than I thought, if I'm totally honest. Uh, And I think part of it is because I think there's a few reasons. One, I have an awesome husband who really is aligned with me in all of this. Now, what's interesting about my husband, and he's also my husband of 21 years, he's also my business partner. So we work very well together. We're opposites in almost every single way, personality wise. Um, Uh, but our values are the same, but his school experience is literally the other extreme for mine. And we often actually joke before we were parents, we're like, I wonder how we're going to parent this because Mm. I had this massive disability and had a just kind of a massive failure, 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 failure. I mean, I've experienced so much failure. I'm just like, to me, it's like breathing. I'm just like so used to it. And he was the other extreme. He was the top of his class. He had 97% average. He had like full scholarship. Like, so we're literally like the bookends, right? And we, and we, we, was, we would often say, okay, we're the bookends. So where are our kids going to land mm. in this? And, you know, I remember saying to him before we were parents, we're like, you know what? If we can just apply what we learned, if we can just teach our boys some of the lessons that we have learned, they're going to be okay because we just have to make sure that we're kind of teaching them as best as we can. So I feel like I've got his support. I've got two awesome boys. Um, they've also seen me and I've been very open about my, my experience um, and my, and my, um, my struggles and how that's kind of helped and shaped me. Um, but they've also seen their dad who has a very different story. So I feel like they've kind of got these kind of different narratives, but um it's been so much fun. I love being a mom of twins. I love being a mom of teenagers. I feel like teens get a really bad reputation, but teens were always my specialty. Like when I first Mm -hmm. practiced 25 years ago, my specialty were teenagers and millennials. That that was kind of my entry into the workplace in terms of organizational psychology and leadership development. So I, I, of all the age brackets, actually, I find teens actually the most exciting because they, their curiosity, the questions, they're figuring themselves out. So, um, I have loved it. I found that, uh, the younger years, just more physically challenging, right? Uh, the emote, the, the teen years are more emotionally tiring, but they're also the most exciting and actually, um, and energizing actually at the same time too. So I've, I've really quite loved it. And it's fun getting your front row seat to watch these two different yeah. creations become, yeah. and you think back to your parents, you know, your dad, I love this. Your dad was a pastor and mm-hmm. you didn't, you didn't know that PK was even a thing. Which mm-hmm. in our world, for those of you listening that, right. that don't, right. that don't, it's a preacher's kid. And typically they're always given the, the, uh, the deal. You're not going to turn out very well. You're going to rebel against your parents. How did your parents build in a healthy faith into you? So it wasn't just what your dad did. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about that. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really, when I think about kind of, again, healthy parenting um, in terms of what my parents did, they really differentiated a lot of things, Mm. okay? So they differentiated a lot between, um, you know, failure is data, it doesn't define you, okay? So that was one thing. But faith was the same thing, okay? And even the the PK thing. So, you know, and again, when I kind of think back, you know, what they did is they, my dad, you know, and I talked about this on Carrie Newhoff's um, podcast, you know, he made it when he got hired by churches, he would 
sit down and say, you know, one of the boundaries that I have is that my children are not to be called PK. So I literally did not know what that word was until I was at a camp and somebody called it to me and they couldn't, I was like 15 or 14 or something like that. And, um, but again, that's another way of differentiating and setting a boundary. Right. So, and so he would say, I am hired for this job, not my children. Like, just so think about how healthy that is. So that was like Mm -hmm. another one. The same thing with faith, Mike. The same thing was like, this is our faith. And we would love for you to have this faith, but this is your life, not our life. This is between you and God, not anybody else. Um, And so again, it's that separation, that differentiation between this is, you know, we are who we are, but you are your own person. And we're going to kind of like, hopefully help and encourage and inspire. um, But this is your choice. And I think that's really important because it's about choice. It's not about control. Yep. It's about inspiration and, and having meaningful conversations about faith, not about like, well, we're a Christian family and we're, you know, so you better go to church and you better, you know, like there was none of that. It was, and again, I'm a spirited kid. If they mm-hmm. had done it differently, I think I would have kind of gone off way over here. So, so control in psychology, there's a thing that's called locus of control, and it's really important. And it's around that, you know, when you want to have a really uh, help people develop well, they need to have a sense of control in their life. And if you try to control, um, they will feel really disempowered and, and just, you know, not their best version of self. And so really what, the, what my mom and dad were doing is that they were instilling a lot of locus of control. They were, they were kind of like setting up the boundary, but then let sitting back and allowing me to kind of like figure things out. Um, and even when I coach, when I, whether I'm coaching, you know, fortune 500 CEOs with their team and, or their family, um, I often say you have to like, you know, with spirited kids, you have to still set up guardrails for them. You still have to set up boundaries for them. It's not like you're just kind of like stepping off, but you widen it so that you've got guardrails, but then they still have room to kind of make decisions and sometimes actually to fall and fail. Um, but that's kind of part of the secret sauce, I think, on really raising healthy, uh, confident, you know, emotionally healthy kids. Yeah. And kids that don't walk away from their faith. So yeah. it's so interesting. Yeah. You think about the more you want yeah. them to dig it down, dig it down. And I know, yeah. you know, there's a whole, there's a whole thing in our generation now where kids in their twenties, they quit going to church because mom's faith's gone. Dad's faith's gone. Yeah. Youth pastor's faith's gone. Their FCA or their Christian club at school's gone. And all of a sudden, if right. they haven't dropped their own anchor, yes. they're going to drift, but you fear giving away ownership. As a yes. parent, letting them own it. Do yes. you think your parents knew what they were doing? Or do you think they were just praying their way through as they went? I think they were praying. I think they they are prayer warriors. Okay. Mm-hmm. They are prayer warriors without question. Um, they both come from really uh difficult childhoods. So they both came from families, not from faith, which is interesting. So they both mm-hmm. come from these kind of like really tricky family dynamics then they become Christians, then they get married. And so I think because of a little bit of that, their background, they were very intent and very intentional to try to raise healthy, a really healthy family and healthy dynamic. Um, they are without question, like the two of the wisest people I know, which is really, and so later on, they did more education on it. But at the time, certainly when we were little, they had it would have just been prayer and wisdom that really kind of led them later on. My mom ended up going back and she did her master's in counseling and she became a chaplain. Um, and my dad ended up later on doing, um, 
when he retired, he actually started doing conflict mediation in churches. And so they both got got more professional training in the realm of like psychology and counseling and boundaries and all of that. But when I was small, it it would have, it was completely just prayer and wisdom and just kind of really, um, I mean, if you read scripture, it's all there, right? Like it's all there. It's just worded a little different, but if you really read scripture, uh, you'll see that just the importance around differentiation and, uh, not controlling and more empowering language. And, um, and, you know, so if you can kind of have that mindset for parents, then the, uh, you know, it will highly affect in terms of the development of your kids. I love that. And that's such a great piece of your story. You know, we use a little phrase all the time, God never wastes our time and he never wastes our experiences. And all that you went through growing up, probably when you were in eighth grade and you got the diagnosis and this guy tells you, he he, he limits you, you find out I can bust through those limits. It drives so much of who you are today. How much do you find sitting down coaching now, coaching CEOs, coaching leaders of massive organizations or even just parents when you're in your counseling practice when you still do that how much do you find so much of who they are goes back to their third through eighth grade years is that something that's really real that you go they Mm -hmm. are now who they were then if yeah for sure there's there's definitely you know our development and what shapes us right with what shapes us and we all have different parts of our childhood that highly impact us, highly shape us and watching, what do we do with that? You know, does it, does it just kind of like impact us and we just kind of fall or do we kind of learn how to like push through it and kind of, um, and so it is for sure interesting. One of the things I love when, when we, um, whether it's myself or somebody on our team in terms of like coaching, in terms of senior leaders, what I love is that we can develop ourselves really strong in one part of our life, but we're not developed in another part of our life. So, you know, for example, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm working with a senior leadership team and we're working on, you know, retention and engagement in their company. And, you know, so we had an all day training. And then the second half of the day, I work with the, um, the couple of the CEOs. And what I love about that is that, so we start professional and, you know, it's all around kind of like, what do we have to do on the team side? And then when it kind of, when everybody else leaves, then all of a sudden we kind of start talking about with what's really happening at home. So you can have like literally be, feel really confident in your work profession, but then you go home, you're like, Karen, I don't really know how to talk to my 10 year old. I feel like I'm so competent in this part of my life, but I don't know how to, I don't know what on earth my wife is looking for. And so this is where my background in, um, in counseling as well as leadership development has been like super helpful because when I work with these leaders, you know, I'm like their one-stop shop. We're able to kind of talk about all of the above. They're like, Oh gosh, I love this. We can talk about like how to, you know, increase our retention with our team. And we can also talk about how do we actually get better engagement with their family. And so, so I think it's a really uh, popular area, Mike, is that we can kind of develop our professional side, but our personal side is struggling. And if we want to really become, and my whole thing is around really building and developing great leaders, we really want to develop great leaders that we really have to make sure that we're applying these principles in all parts of our life, not just in our work. You know, I heard a counselor say years ago, we really are, our lives are like a big bowl of soup. Everything's just sort of thrown in. Now we may try to separate it, but we never, we, we never completely get those things apart and all things play into it. And it really, all of this has sort of come out in this, 
incredible book that you've come out with called Three Chairs, and it is outstanding. And we'll have links in the show notes. Your TED Talk is amazing. But all of this, so much of the story is packed into those three chairs. And it's so simple, but yet it's so profound. I was telling you just a moment ago, I was sharing it with some incredible leaders that I get to walk with and learn from and be on the journey with. Talk to us a little bit about what those three chairs are and why we are, and I love what you say, we're never in just one. We're, we're right. always moving a little bit, but we know where yeah. we want to be. So talk to us a little bit about that and we'll, we'll talk through those. Sure. So for, I'm a visual learner. That's one of the things I learned about uh, with my, with my learning preference. And so for everybody watching, I'm going to show the picture just so they can kind of see it. Okay. Because um, 70 to 80% of people are either, either visual or kinesthetic learners. And so, okay, so here, here's the book. And here are the three chairs. So I created the three chairs as a model because when I started coaching teenagers and millennials 25 years ago, I found that a lot of them struggled with self-esteem and confidence. And so I wanted to really understand the power of confidence and self-esteem and how that affects decision-making and leadership. So that's why I kind of created the concept. But to make it really easy to understand, I created the concept of the three chairs. And so here are the three chairs. Everybody listening, think to yourself, which one sounds like you? Which one sounds like your kids, your spouse, your team? Because this applies to every single age group, okay? This is not, even though the book is a business book, um, this, I, I started teaching the three chairs to teenagers and eventually all the way to kindergarten's kids. So here they are, here are the three chairs. The one in the left chair, is what I call the blind attitude. That's a person that they really, they put themselves down. They're, they they put themselves down. They're super tough, super critical towards themselves. Um, they may appear really confident, uh, but behind the mask, they're really struggling with massive insecurity. Um, a lot of times they might uh, set the goals too high uh, They might or not at all. They might actually also be a perfectionist, struggle massively with anxiety. They're more likely, more likely in terms of for anxiety and depression. So that is, that is the left chair. The right chair is what we call the arrogant attitude. That's the person they're cocky, they're arrogant, they're full of themselves. They will put people down. They don't really care about how other people actually feel. Um, they are, and this is often a big cover up for the right chair or the left chair. Okay. The right chair is often a big cover up for the left chair. Uh, then you got the middle chair. That's the confident attitude, the confident leader. And that's the person that they feel confident about who they are. Um, but they're not arrogant. And this is a really big difference between the middle and the right chair is that there's humility. So the person in the middle chair, they're like, okay, I know a lot, but I don't know everything. So I'm going to be open for feedback. I'm going to be open to hear your viewpoint. Um, and so they're, they, they have a sense of confidence, but not arrogance. They have humility. They're more likely to go after risks. They're more likely to ask for feedback. They're more likely to see feedback as data. They don't personalize it. Um, and they also tend to be the lifters. Okay, these are the people that they just lift other people up because they have that emotional capacity. They just lift people up. They encourage them. Um, and they really want the best for other people. And so I created the concept of the three chairs really around the, the three different attitudes of self-esteem or, um, or mindsets, but based on the research, once you kind of figure out with what chair you sit in, you can make very strong educated guesses on how you're going to make decisions, everything mm -hmm. from goal setting, who you choose as a partner, who you choose as your friends, um, how you deal with conflict. It's all based on research. Um, and so anyway, more, much more details on in, in the book, but this really here is the leader. And in the book, I talk about 
the five core skills, uh, the five leadership EQ skills that you need to develop for that middle chair, which we call cards. Um, And you can actually measure that. And so for anybody listening who wants to learn how to measure that, we have a free scorecard. that you can actually go to our website at dkleadership.org and you can download it and you can actually do the scorecard and you can actually measure your emotional intelligence according to those five things. And it's a great starting point um, for just to kind of like start the conversation with yourself. And also you can do it with yourself. You can do it with your family. You can do it with your team. You can do it with your kids uh, around how would I, how am I doing according to those kind of five core skills of sitting in the middle chair. And title has nothing to do with which chair you're in. Your title title and what you've attained. Yeah. So leadership is a mindset, not a title. Okay. That's that's very much of a term. So you could be, you could have a child that is in grade one who is sitting in the middle chair. So they have a strong sense of yes. They know what to say yesterday. They know what to say no to. They choose other friends who sit in the middle chair. They set healthy, realistic goals. They know how to kind of manage feedback. So you could have literally kids in kindergarten sitting in the middle chair and you can have a fortune 500 CEO sitting in that right chair. Like it is, this is nothing to do with how much money you got in the bank and what titles you got beside your name and what, you know, like it has nothing to do with it. It's all around what you think actually about in yourself. And one of the things I love about my work is that when I work with teams, you know, a lot of times people will appear in the middle chair. And so in front of their company, they will appear in the middle chair. And then when they start, you know, connecting with me one-on-one, they're like, Karen, I see myself not left chair. Um, And 70% of the population suffer from the imposter syndrome and the imposter syndrome are there are those two end chairs. So only about 30% of people would really say, you know what? I really see myself sitting in the middle chair the majority of the time. And like you said, Mike, nobody sits in one chair. We're, we're moving around. And sometimes people are like, you know, I see, I see myself sitting in the middle chair at work, but when I go home, I think I go to the right chair or I see myself sitting in the middle chair until it's in conflict. And when I hit conflict, then I go to the left chair. So you know, it's really helpful for people to think about, okay, where do I see myself sitting in the different parts of my life? And then what do I need to do to help myself sit in that middle chair mm-hmm. or consistently in all parts of my life? You, what I love about it is you gave a framework and you gave, so I was talking to a local high school football coach yesterday and we were yeah. talking about one of his players. And I said, and I sent him your Ted talk because of the, t- the timing of it. And I said, you need to, this is perfect working with this player because it gives you words. It gives you something yeah. that he'll go. Yeah. And it's not saying to them, you're being negative. It's saying, yeah. Hey, you went in the wrong chair, man. You're sitting yeah. in the wrong chair. We've got to move. What would be if you were coaching someone, Dr. Mm-hmm. Karen, and you said they're in the insecure chair, they're in yeah. the waiting for thing to fail chair. Right. What is the biggest thing? And you talk about it a little bit in the book, and it's so good. What's the biggest thing they need to get to be able to move to that middle chair? What's the the biggest thing they've got to get their arms around? Well, there's a lot. And I think, you know, that you asked two really good questions. The one was around the coaching, and the second one was how to, how to help a person in the middle chair. So the coaches, the coaches, the the managers, the teams, the, whatever, whatever your role you're in. You know, you're right about the language. The language is really powerful because how do you have this conversation? Like nobody's going to talk about like, what's up? What's your self-esteem? Like you can't go there. Right. So, but you can, once people know the three chairs, it becomes an easy framework where all you have to ask, whether again, in a team meeting or a one-on-one or a family is what chair do you think you're sitting in right now? Regarding this situation, what chair do you see yourself sitting in? So never tell a person, oh, you're sitting in the left chair. Don't tell people that. That's like, that. that's going to be very offensive to them. But you can say, you know, in this situation, what chair do you think you're sitting in right now? 
and let them claim that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important piece and you can use that. And I've had teachers use that as a model. I've had managers use that as a model and that kind of calls with that client. What chair do you think you're actually sitting in? What chair do you think the client is sitting in? If it's like, you know, so you, so you can, it's it's a great way of, in terms of being a little bit more self-reflective. So that's kind of around that piece around what to help people sit in the middle chair. There's a lot that the biggest thing, and I talk about this in the Ted talk is our mindset. Like the, the big The big ask would be that we have to change our mindset to I am enough. That's right. I am enough. I am loved, period. Like there's no ifs in this. Like there's no buts. They're not like I'm okay if I get this goal, if I get this net worth, if, 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 if. No, people who sit in the middle chairs, I am enough, period. I am loved, period. If I get that goal, that's awesome. But my self-worth isn't going to plummet if I don't get it. And so that's the big, that's the big overarching. Okay. So once people can really absorb that mindset, then everything starts falling into place. That's the big ass. That's a hard one, but you can do it. And in the book, I talk about lots of ways of how you can change your mindset. People think that you can't change it. You can change it. It takes work. And I, and I've done this for 25 years. I know my field really well. And I've coached literally hundreds upon thousands of people have had to do this. So you can do it, but you do have to do it in a certain way. And I talked about that in one of the chapters. Um, but the second way to do it, one of sometimes a couple of the, I'd say maybe two of the easier ways to help yourself sitting in the middle chair um, is identify people in your life that are already sitting in the middle chair. Yeah. Uh, figure out who do I know? Who are the coaches, the youth pastors, the aunts, uncles, neighbors, you know, colleagues, who do you already know that's sitting in the middle chair and try to spend time with them? Because when you spend time with them, it's like a language. It, when you spend time with them, you will learn all kinds of things. You will learn how they deal with feedback, how they deal with rejection, how they set and say no, how they set boundaries. You'll learn all of these skills by simply just spending time with them. Okay. So the more you can kind of be, you know, spend time with people in the middle chair and learn from them, I think it's really big. And then the, the third thing is really setting realistic goals that are important to you. Yeah. Um, in, and again, I talk about this in the book, but in terms of, and when I speak to high school students, you know, you know, so much of the, you know, focus is like set goals, set goals. So you want to set goals, but you do have to do it in a certain way. Otherwise, you're going to fall yourself back in the list. So the difference with a person who sets goals in the middle is they set a goal that's important to them, not to please a parent or to please a manager. Okay, so they're going to set goals that are important to them. Um, They take initiative. They step on the gas. They do whatever they can. They put their hand up, ask for help if they need it. And then they accept whatever their best is. So they strive for excellence, not perfection. Because mm. a lot of times people in the left and the right chair, they might also set goals, but that's not going to help them sit in the middle chair because they're setting the goal. It's like, I want this goal because I want to be perfect or I want to be liked or I want other people to like me. Then that's not going to, you're still, they're still setting a goal, but it's almost going to reinforce the, the, the left and the right chair, if that makes sense. Yep. So, you, you know, it's, you want to make sure you're striving for excellence, not perfection, and that you're really... Um, and you accept whatever your best is because your self-worth is not based on the goal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the left and the right chair, they're like a little bit of a puppet. They've got like these little strings. I'm okay. If I get this goal, I'm okay. If, so I'm going to go after this college or I'm going to go after this job. And if I get it, I'm, I feel good. So I'm setting a goal, Karen, but why am I not sitting in the middle chair? It's because that their self-worth is attached to the goal. So you got to cut the string. 
There's no strings. And that's why that middle chair, that mindset is I am enough, period. No strings, no buts, no, no conditions. I'm enough, period. I want to get this goal. And, but if I don't, I'm disappointed, but my self-worth doesn't plummet. And so again, it's that, you know, that's the theme really from today. When I think about it, Mike, it's like, it's like differentiating. Yep. Yep. It's differentiating, right? I am who I am. My self-worth is who I am. My goals are separate. It's what I want, but it doesn't define me. And again, there's, there's that healthy differentiation actually as well. You know, and it's funny as the longer you're in leadership. So we had this conversation around our, around our board table this morning. Um, one of the guys said, you know, it's so funny because as I've been in leadership now for 20 plus years, I've been right. at my church for 25 years. I would never consider myself an arrogant leader, but then you find yourself in the chair of, well, we've done it that way before and it didn't work. And you're saying this to a younger leader. How, how do you stay in the middle chair with checkpoints of going, all right, I see myself becoming arrogant or I see myself becoming insecure. What would you tell somebody they've been in leadership for a while? They are, they've, they've been entrenched in their position and they know a lot and people come yeah. to them, yeah. but they want to stay humble. And they, I don't know. Did you read eight paradoxes by Tim Elmore? No, I haven't, but oh. it's on my list. It's oh on my, my gosh. His first chapter on confidence and humility is mm. the middle chair, right? Okay. How, how would you, how would you coach somebody to mm -hmm. stay humble, but yet confident, mm -hmm. ask questions, don't think you know everything. How would you coach somebody in that? The, it's a great question. And I think the secret sauce in that is feedback from people that really know you. So, you know, that's another way. That's another way of helping yourself sitting in the middle chair for everybody who's like, you know what, Karen, this makes sense. I wanted to learn to sit in the middle chair. Then this is, this is gutsy. This isn't easy, but this is going to work. It's going to help is you ask feedback from, I'd say three to five people mm -hmm. that really know you well. I would ask uh, people in your house and I would ask people in your company because you're going to get different feedback from different people. And um, feedback is, you know, I think that's actually also one of the reasons why I love this work so much. So my kids will see me on stage. A lot of times they'll come and hear me speak at conferences. They'll see me on TV, you know, and you know, what it was great is like, even for mother's day, um, I said to my boys, I said, you know what I really want for mother's day. I want us to watch my Ted talk. And we've got free discussion questions for families, teams, and also for schools. You can go to my website for all of that, all that free stuff to kind of, cause we really want to inspire yep. meaningful conversations. And I said, what I really want is I want us to watch the Ted talk and have a discussion as a family because they're on the discussion questions. You kind of go through and like, when do you see me sitting in the middle chair? When do you see me mm. sitting in the left mm. chair and talk about a meaningful conversation that we had with our family. We talked for an hour, my husband and my two boys around where we saw each other sitting in the different chairs. And I kind of sat back and I'm like listing them like, you know, mom, like, you know, I think you're sitting in the middle chair, the majority, but you know, I can think sometimes when you sat in the right chair and I can think of the, you know, when you were like in this, I think you sat in the left chair. And so, but because I'm asking for that feedback, I'm okay with it. Right. Because, you know, and so, so as leaders, as parents, as, you know, as business owners, as entrepreneurs, we gotta, we gotta lean in and ask for feedback because the other thing about it is that we can think we're, uh, we can feel that we're sitting in the middle chair, right? But sometimes our words or our body language uh, can can really appear more in the right chair. Mm. 
Okay. And so we can think we're being assertive, but other people will see it as aggressive. You know, then you kind of go into all kinds of like different things around gender communication and, you know, how that affects, you know, how people kind of perceive it. But um, I thought one of the questions my son asked, which I thought was brilliant, he said, mom, is it possible that people can sit in the middle chair, you know, the majority of the time, but then when they get upset, when they get angry, they kind of go in in the right chair. And I thought, wow, what I said, yes, like, that's a great. So in answer to your question, the way you stay humble is you got to ask for feedback. Now, if you want some honest feedback, everybody, and this is gutsy, and this is only for people who are like diehards and really want to do this. Um, Years ago, I had a teenager uh, in my client, in my, in my practice. Well, I still work with teens, but, um, and she, she said, Karen, you know, I'd love to give my dad some feedback because I don't talk to him, but he's never asked for it. And I said, well, that's a problem. I said, so what could you do? You know, how could you give him some feedback? And she's like, she leaned in and she said, you know what you should do? She goes, you should create a report card for parents. Mm. Because if my, if my dad asked me for feedback on something kind of written, I would give it to him, but he's never asked me for feedback. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's brilliant. So we created a report card. Again, it's free. Go to our website. It's there, everybody. And it's a parent report card uh, asking for feedback. And so what I would encourage you to do is if you have three kids, print it for three kids, because you're going to get different feedback from different kids. Tell your kids, um, I would love to get feedback. I want to know what am I doing well? What needs work? Okay, that humility. Uh, I want to be a great parent. So I really want to get some feedback. Let me know what am I doing well? What needs work? And there's no consequences for being honest. And when you, I've had so many people do this and I'm loving the emails we're getting back. We're like, oh my gosh, this is like so interesting. And, and how people are kind of, you know, they're getting some raw data. Um, But here's the thing, a couple tricks. Um, Make sure you tell them there's no, there's no consequences for being honest. And also don't give the report card on behalf of your spouse. I had some people, I had some people saying, this is perfect. I'm going to print it on behalf of my husband. And then he's going to know he's going to get some neck. No, no, no. You, we give, we only for ourselves. And then you can do a follow-up in like three months, six months, you know, based on the feedback. And then you say, thank you. And, and get curious, not defensive. Okay. So if you get something on that report card and you're like, and it might shock you and don't get defensive, get curious. Say, thank you for this feedback. I'm curious. Can you help me understand a little bit more about this answer? I would like to learn more. So lean in, get curious, and then just say, you know what, this is super helpful. I'm going to work on some of this. Uh, would you be willing to do a follow-up with, with, with me in about three months or six mm-hmm. months? Okay. So you're leaning in, you're listening, you're getting that feedback, and then you're doing a follow-up. Don't overdo it. I had, again, a CEO, got to love some of these CEOs I coach. He's like, I love this. This is so practical. I'm going to do this every week. I'm like, do not do this every week. That is going to be great. Like, like, so you want to, so it's a great tool, but we do have to learn how to do it properly. Right. So I would do a follow-up in maybe three months or six months, talk to your team, get their buy-in in that, but it's a beautiful way of saying to your kids, I want to be a parent sitting in the middle chair. I want to know what, what am I doing well and what really needs some work? Um, and so that's a great, again, just to kind of, you know, a lot of times I'm doing these podcasts, my people are like, oh, this is so great, but where do I start? Yes. Where do I even go? The report card is an awesome first step. The leadership EQ scorecard is a great first step. It just kind of gets you one step forward in terms of where do you kind of go in terms of a next step? Well, I want to tell you this book is so 
good. And so we're going to have links to all those things in the show notes. So for all of you listening today on YouTube, on on, uh, Podcast World, we'll have all that. Uh, I want to wrap with this. And I could literally, I did not get through one page of questions because this is so (laughs) fascinating. So I'm like, Carrie, I just can't get enough. I get to ask questions all day. Mike, we'll just have to do a 2.0. We'll do a 2.0. All about it. Yeah, yeah. We'll do a 2.0 and we'll figure out another way in terms that we can kind of, uh, because there is so much. There's so much. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your phrase, you are enough. Mm. That's a, that is, that is one of those that will sink you to your knees. And I don't care. I'm 53. If you're 53, you're 13. Right. There'll be a day that your journey here on earth is over. And we, we, we finish here. Right. When you close your eyes here and you open your eyes in heaven as a, as a believer, and you see Jesus, and you realize to the core of who you are, he really believed you were enough. What would that change about how you live now if we could see that to our creator and the one who knows everything about us, that we're enough for him? We're enough. It's not our performance. It's not our work. It's not what our title was. He loved us for us. What would it change about us here? What would you say? I think it's a beautiful imagery, Mike. And I think, and I've thought about this a lot. I think, I think there would be a place or in terms of almost like surrendering. Mm. I remember years ago, I was praying for something. I was praying for, I was working on producing a television show. And I had this image of myself walking towards in heaven, walking towards God. Okay. And it was like an image that I had as I was kind of praying. And as, as I was walking, I was praying about it. And I was praying about it and I was holding this proposal in my hand. And as I walked towards God in this, in this prayer, I literally came to him and I fell on my knees and he took the proposal and he threw it, you know, and I'm going to like start to cry when I think about it. And it was kind of in the moment, like, he's like, I don't really care about the stuff, right? I don't really care about the goals and the tasks. What I care about is you. Mm. And I really think that that is really, you know, everything that we're doing really on this, on this earth is around developing us as people. It's all about character, right? And, you know, the tasks and the goals and all of that, it's all good stuff. And it all kind of helps us kind of like benefit and and help other people. But at the end of the day, when our time is up, it really is between us and God, period. Mm -hmm. And really what he wants is just to chisel us and help us really understand and develop our worth. So I think if we can kind of figure that out as early as possible and understand that he is saying, that's why, you know, when I, when I wrote the script for the Ted talk, um, and I was trying to think about a song, I need a song. Cause when I post this up on social media, I want to kind of put a song. And then I came across that incredible song of Jaira um, mm. that Elevation actually. And then of course, Justin Bieber kind of sang it as well. And I thought, oh, that is the song. That is the song around You Are Enough. Like it literally is like the most perfect song with the TED Talk and uh, and the book, because that is, it. that is, you know, if, if everybody can, if we can just understand it, like that's what the whole scripture is about is trying to help us understand that concept and everything else starts falling into place. So, you know, for everybody listening, whether or not, whatever your faith background is or all of that, just to kind of think about if, you know, you are enough period, you are enough period. And to absorb that, to meditate on it, to pray on it, to think about it, to reflect on it 
and really absorbing that, that everything else starts falling into place. That is the heartbeat of the middle chair. You know, I got off that call with Dr. Karen and I thought about all my years in leadership. It's so funny how I can vacillate from feeling like an imposter one day to maybe being a little too arrogant another day, but man, finding our place in that middle chair, you know, it's the chair Tim Elmore talks about in the eight paradigms of that humble yet confident leader. And boy, that is just so good. And the role really that fear plays in our journey. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen, for joining us, for being a part I've had so many leaders that I leaked this episode to that have already contacted Dr. Gordon about coming into their company, coming into their businesses, doing some executive coaching. She is the real deal and just such a joy to talk to. So good. Make sure and go pick up The Three Chairs. It is it is a great book and something you will use and refer to all the time. I can promise you that. Well, our next episode is going to be another fun one. We're going to go, we're going to be right in the middle of the Major League Baseball uh, playoffs and all the craziness that comes around with postseason baseball and the MLB. And I thought it would be a great time to sit down with somebody that I remember hearing about when my kids were growing up, actually. And his name is Jim Morris. You may remember the movie put out by Disney called The Rookie. That is about his life. And that is about his story. A story from being a burned out baseball player who's coaching high school baseball to the next time we find him, he's pitching in the major leagues unbelievable story of triumph, adversity, heartache, joy, and everything in between. Jim, the rookie Morris, is going to be a good one. Well, thanks again for joining today. Make sure and share this episode with a good friend or with your friends on social media. And I can't wait to see you back again when we release episode 150. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.